2: the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities In the last episode,
1: I talked about ghosts that were nice, friendly ghosts, (laughs) and not like Casper the friendly ghost, but like ghosts that uh, helped people and perhaps saved lives from beyond the grave. Sure. One of the stories I talked about was the car in Utah that went off the uh, bridge into the river. Right. Yeah. Well, we got a message from Brent. He says, I live in Salem, Utah and drive past the Spanish Fork River almost every day at the same time that the mom and her baby went in. Oh, wow. There is only one house close to that spot, maybe 50 yards away. The people inside the house supposedly heard a crash and went outside to look but didn't see any cars on the road. I could see the tire marks the next day where she drove over the curb. I'm having mixed feelings right now about having additional information on this tragedy. You did a great job reporting it. Have a great day. Wow. First-hand account.
0: That's always rough. It's like, I mean, I totally get the, the not knowing how to feel about having that additional information. It's like, oh, mm. I can contribute. And also, this was terrible.
1: It was just awful. Yeah. And this was on the Freak Group uh, page. Katie writes, I just finished today's episode. I'm always entertained by the paranormal stories that Kat just rejects. <laughs> I'm all for skepticism. I have a healthy dose of it myself, but I do believe in paranormal stuff, just not every dumb thing that people claim. But I love it when Jethro tells one that you can hear Stump's cat. I love it.
0: I don't I don't recall that ever happening. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> I don't reject everything. I just... No, no. You know.
1: Just... Wish that it was all not true.
0: It's not that I wish, it's that I, you know, I mean, I just, I think that I like similarly to Katie, I like to think that I bring a healthy dose of skepticism.
1: What you got for me? What, what you, what you, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me?
0: Okay, Arizona.
1: Lived there for years.
0: That's true. The Magoyan Rim. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar?
1: I know the name. I've never been.
0: Okay. So uh, the Magoyan Rim is a geological feature that cuts across the state of Arizona, and it extends approximately 200 miles. It starts in northern Yavapi County.
1: That's northern Arizona. I, I didn't spend a lot of time there. Yeah.
0: Um, I will say while doing research for this topic, I came across about nineteen articles about lists of places in Arizona no one knows how to pronounce. <laughs> and so do with that what you will. Okay. Um
1: like Fort Huachuca.
0: Oh, that's a good one.
1: Yeah, that's you you try to read that one out, it's not easy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so the uh, the rim runs eastward, ending near the border with New Mexico, and it forms the southern edge of the Colorado Plateau in Arizona. So there is said to live a creature known as the Magoyan monster. What? Yes.
1: I have not heard of this. And, and like I said, I lived in Arizona for 20 years.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. The Magoyan monster is Arizona's version of Bigfoot, basically. And from now on, I'm gonna call him M Foot. Okay. Because it's hard to say Magoyan over and over again, especially since I'm not sure I'm saying it right. <laughs> so this guy, M Monster, or M Foot, supposedly lives. Uh, along the Magoyan Rim, although he has been spotted around Prescott and in the Grand Canyon. He seems to be pretty shy, but every once in a while he does pop out for a visit. M-Foot is reported to be uh, very tall, bipedal, and uh, has incredible strength.
1: Some type of a primate, like Bigfoot is supposed to be.
0: Exactly. A desert squatch, if you will. He is reported to have large eyes that some claim to be wild and red. And his body is said to be covered with long black or reddish brown hair, with the exclusion of his chest, face, hands, and feet.
1: And those are bare? That's correct. Okay. Or hairless. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. No,
0: not a bear. Not
1: a bear. Though no. some say so. It's not. Now. It's Bigfoot.
0: You, wow, you've just heard of him, and already you're on board. Yep. Okay. Now, reports claim that he uh, smells real, real bad. And uh, that smell is akin to kind of like a skunky thing? Yeah. Or maybe a rotting fish.
1: Okay. All right. You know, I've heard uh, mysterious Bigfoot-like creatures uh, in various areas of the country smelling like uh, skunk. Well, the skunk ape. It smells like a like a skunk, among other things.
0: Others report that that his weird smell is kind of like a decaying plant matter or like even the musk of a snapping turtle. Basically, if it smells bad and it comes from outside, this uh, giant desert ape could smell like it. According to azcentral.com, Don Davis Who was a cryptozoology investigator? He died in 2002. He claimed that he encountered the monster at a Boy Scout camp near Payson in the 1940s. So I thought this was kind of interesting because it was not a situation where a guy who was into like cryptids and uh, this kind of thing went out into the woods and supposedly spotted, you know, M Foot. It was a situation where he was a Boy Scout out in the woods as a kiddo in the 1940s and saw this, and that dictated the rest of his life. He went into cryptozoology because of this event.
1: Because of what he experienced in the 40s as a kid.
0: He described the creature as huge. Its eyes, he said, were deep set and hard to see, but they seemed expressionless. His face seemed pretty much devoid of hair, but there seemed to be hair along the sides of his face. This sounds very familiar. His chest, shoulders, and arms were massive, especially the upper arms, easily upwards of six inches in diameters, perhaps much, much more. I could see he was pretty hairy, but I didn't observe really how thick the body hair was. The face and head was very square, square sides, squared up chin like a box. And apparently he had mutton chops.
1: Like me. Yes. Hopefully I smell better.
0: Okay. So uh, stories say that the creature is nocturnal and that he noms on both plants and very territorial, sometimes reported to be violent. Uh, He is reported to walk with a wide stride that's not human-like and leave behind footprints measuring 22 inches in length.
1: Holy crap. Yeah. That's a big, big foot.
0: Right. M foot. M-Foot. Is what we're calling him. Now, it's said that most of the experiences that people have with M-Foot is like around campsites because they're out in the wilderness, Abs. And uh, he will build nests, they say, out of pine needles, kind of hunkered down in the twigs and the leaves and such. And that he will hurl stones at people from his little nest if he feels like he's being invaded upon.
1: See, that's also typical of the Northwestern. Sasquatch. There have been reports Rock throwing? Rock throwing, yes People, uh, I've heard numbers, of, A number of stories of uh, People that were in a cabin And uh, they heard rocks falling on Their roof and they went out and they Smelled a skunky smelly th- Smell thing.
0: Are you sure that it Wasn't rain Falling, falling angry, angry on, on the, the tin roof?
1: roof? No, no, and they weren't laying awake In bed. Um, it was Bigfoot. Tim!
0: We belong together.
1: Bigfoot apparently likes to throw rocks.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: he's a sporty type.
0: Now, uh, there are reports that he has been said to emit a blood-curdling scream, described as sounding like a woman in great distress. And uh, according to others, there is an eerie silence in the wilderness before there are encounters with M-Foot. So pretty much everything else uh, shuts right up if this dude's around. And it's said that he can produce whistle sounds or mimic birds, mimicking coyotes or other wildlife, uh, maybe in an effort to confuse the those that are coming into his space.
1: Okay, how do we know this? You would have to see Sasquatch impersonating a coyote mm-hmm. to know that it wasn't a coyote. How would we know this?
0: This is uh, reported.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Listen, well, I totally believe it's real. I but know. I have a question about that.
0: Huh. The oldest known documented sighting of M. foot was reported in a 1903 edition of the Arizona Republican In which I.W. Stevens described a creature seen near the Grand Canyon. Stevens described M Foot as having long white hair and a matted beard that reached to his knees. So that just sounds Hmm. like body hair. I mean, unless you're a part of ZZ Top.
1: Or a really tall, grizzled prospector.
0: (laughs) It wore no clothing and had talon like fingers that had claws at least two inches long upon them Uh, upon further inspection stevens noted a coat of gray hair nearly covering his entire body with here and there a spot of dirty skin showing stevens later reported that he discovered the creature drinking the blood of cougars and it threatened him with a club
1: wow yeah drinking the blood of Hot, middle-aged women. That's weird.
0: Yeah. He was uh, going after Courtney Cox, but
1: uh,
0: (laughs) it was too hot.
1: Too hot to handle. Yeah.
0: Um, Which I would buy. I would buy that Courtney Cox was too hot to consume. She's fabulous. Anyway, M. Foot, the consensus in this room is thumbs up, totally. We're buying into it. However, uh, Professor Stan... Linstead of Northern Arizona University does not buy it. Uh, He dismisses the idea that a large humanoid creature would remain hidden in such a large area of the country. He says, I put that in the category of mythology that can certainly make our culture interesting, but has nothing to do with science. He didn't even grow up in Arizona.
2: (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) <laughs>
0: Generally, the scientific community attributes creature sightings to either hoaxes or misidentification. Um, now, as recently as the early 1930s, uh, he cites that grizzly bears have been spotted in Arizona. So okay. right. that, that he thinks could be confused with a seven-plus-foot bipedal, Mm -hmm. humanoid, red-eyed, giant-footed, stinky cougar drinker.
1: Right. Um, I've heard that explanation before with Bigfoot, again, in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah. um, That it's been explained by some as a grizzly bear standing on its hind legs. Mm. Okay. I imagine that would probably be a pretty imposing sight, especially if it was dusk Mm -hmm. and you're just kind of... uh, hanging out by the campfire, and you've heard these stories.
0: Right, and you've recently partaken in some sort of...
1: Peyote or uh, mushrooms, sure, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, you're camping.
1: Well, that's Let's... true. <laughs> Why
0: else do you camp? It's just...
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Anyway, uh, there you go. That's the... How did I pronounce it? Magoyan. M- M-foot. M-foot. Right. Monster of Arizona.
1: Cryptozoology has always fascinated me. And the idea that for many years, people thought that giraffes were mythical creatures. The uh, world explorers of the day would come back from Africa with these stories about this long-necked horse that was yellow and black and spotted. And Mm -hmm. people said, yeah, right. That's not real. It's mythical. And it, of course, in fact proved to be mythical no it, it it's a real thing same with hippopotami is that the proper way of pluralizing hippopotamus sure hippopotami anyway same thing with them people thought they were mythical
0: right. yeah well i mean that was a different time different availability of information and sharing
1: yeah but they used to think that drafts weren't real yeah and now
2: that thing in the middle
0: Today's thing in the middle. We are once again sourcing from the Freaks, a box of oddities group on Facebook. Uh, thank you guys for doing so much work for us. Honestly, it's amazeballs.
1: Joelian, I, I think that's how you'd pronounce it. J o a l i e n. It's a beautiful name to read, but difficult to pronounce when you're illiterate from Northern Maine. Um, she says, "What is something you deeply regret trying?" Me trying to pronounce your name. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> you did you did good. Number five, Bradley writes, Watching Dr. Pimple Popper.
1: Yeah, how did that get to be a series?
0: Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: Number four, Cody writes, thinking hand sanitizer can freshen you up on the nether region. Holy hell, I thought I was gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Number three. And this is a common theme throughout the responses. Marriage.
2: <laughs>
0: Sorry. Sorry, that didn't work out.
1: Number two, Michael writes, kale. Alternatively, marriage. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a different story altogether, he said.
0: And number one, Laura writes, the Russian roulette tacos at a local Tex-Mex place. <laughs> Let me set the picture up. Okay. You get three tacos, all of them spicy. However, one of them is dosed up with an extra ghost pepper and habanero. Which one is it? That's the fun part. This is my husband's favorite thing to eat. I love spicy food, but he gave me a piece of the super one, and I was five seconds away from calling 911. (laughs) That sounds like a fun idea.
2: The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth.
0: Our next HelloFresh delivery will include creamy lemon spinach ricotta ravioli.
1: When is it gonna get here?
0: Crunchy curried chickpea bowls.
1: Uh, again, when is it gonna get here? And
0: roasted veggie farro bowls. Good God! I am so excited, and I cannot get enough of HelloFresh.
1: We have a very busy schedule, and sometimes, you know, like like you, I'm sure you do too. You you fall into a like a, a dinner rut,
0: like uh, 16 weeks in a row of grilled cheese sandwiches.
1: We were almost ready to go professional. <laughs> and the grilled cheese sandwich eating uh, circuit. But thanks to HelloFresh, we now have variety. It saves time. It gets rid of the stress of trying to figure out what you want to make for dinner because they send you these delicious meals ready to prepare.
0: They're pre-measured ingredients, so there's no waste. You don't have to spend time at the grocery store figuring out what you need for what. And there's something for everyone, including low-calorie vegetarian, and family-friendly recipes every week.
1: HelloFresh's carbon footprint is 25% lower than store-bought grocery-made meals. Wow, I didn't know that. There's so much flexibility, too. You can add extra meals or lunches to your weekly order. Uh, You can throw in delicious sides and desserts like the garlic bread. That's one of my favorite. Also, cookie dough. Mm. Come on. Yeah. And you can change your delivery days or your food preferences or even skip a week if you need to.
0: Yeah, we had to skip last week because we weren't going to be in town. It it's so convenient and every single time delicious.
1: It is America's number one meal kit.
0: Go to HelloFresh.com slash Box 10 and use code Box 10 for 10 free meals, what? including free shipping.
1: Repeat that again, would you please?
0: I would. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Box 10 and use code Box 10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping.
1: That link is in our show description. What are you waiting for?
0: You know, I don't like wearing a bra.
1: (laughs) Well, for somebody who doesn't like wearing a bra, you sure have a lot of really nice ones.
0: Here's the thing is I love wearing third love bras.
1: And if you ever come to our house, you can see the entire collection hanging on our doorknobs.
0: Stop. Here's the thing about Third Love is they are designed for your perfect fit. So they use the measurements of millions of women to design bras with all day comfort and support in mind. Uh, My favorite thing, and you pointed this out the other day, is the way that the straps are designed. Yeah. So they uh, don't slip down over your shoulder, which is the most annoying thing in the history of the world. Uh, but they don't cut into you either. They look
1: comfortable. They are. Now you were telling me that it was really easy to find your perfect fit.
0: It was actually kind of surprising. So they have the Fit Finder quiz. Uh, You answer a few simple questions to help find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. It's actually fun and it's uh, super quick. They talk about not just like your, your size and such, but like your shape. So you can determine if maybe you've not been wearing the right size bra which was the case in my situation.
1: And so you're ordering this. It comes in the mail. What if it doesn't fit?
0: Third Love donates all of their gently used returned bras to women in need, supporting charities in their local San Francisco Bay Area and across the U.S. So if you don't dig a bra and you return it, they're going to donate it, which is amazing. So far, Third Love has donated over $15 million in bras. Wow.
1: It seems like Third Love knows the perfect bra for everyone. And uh, they have given us a tremendous deal for Box of Oddities listeners. 15% off your first order.
0: Go to thirdlove.com box now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase.
1: That's thirdlove.com box for 15% off. The code is also in our show description. You're listening
2: to The Box of Oddities. The question is,
1: why? We shared
0: a message from Dragon last episode or the episode before. I, I don't remember. Um it it, sent us an email at curator at theboxofoddities.com. He's
1: a faithful freak.
0: It basically talked about how he'd been going through a rough time and um, really appreciated uh, the camaraderie that the that this community brings. And uh, I have to say, it's probably my favorite thing about this podcast as well is this amazing community. And this only goes to prove my point. I got a message on Instagram uh, this morning. And it goes a little something like this. Okay, cat." Ask the dragon if he needs a mom, (laughs) and if he does, send him to me, because I got all the mom feels on hearing what he's gone through. I'm so glad he could hang on to the podcast and his inner beautiful freak. Love you guys. Thank you so, so much for that message and for reaching out and for being part of this thing and sharing yourselves with us. It means a lot, and... Uh, that's it, whatever, bye. I, I'm not going to talk about it anymore.
1: <laughs> no, I, I too really appreciate the camaraderie and the support uh, within this uh, freak family. On the uh, Freaks, a box of identities group page, somebody said, I need your help. I need your support. I've been 24 hours without smoking.
0: Oh, yeah. And there
1: was like, I don't know, 80 or 90 comments that I saw, people suggesting ways to... You know, we're offering support and encouragement, and that just warms the cockles of my heart.
0: Yeah, my cockles are steamy.
1: Up until recently, I've had to have my cockles removed and artificially warmed and then replaced. And that can be expensive in today's healthcare environment. Anyway, it's my turn. Here we go. Yes, please. In medieval times, there was a strange occurrence. Medieval. In medieval times, there was a strange (laughs) occurrence that most people were convinced was either demonic possession or the wrath of God pouring out on them. Was it vomit? Maybe indirectly. It would start with a person feeling like their arms and legs were on fire, and then their limbs would turn black and fall off.
0: Uh, Were they on fire?
1: They were not on fire, literally. It just felt like it. And then it would turn (laughs) black and fall off. For centuries, Europeans wondered, was this sent by God as some sort of a punishment or was it some sort of a demonic possession thing? Could anything cure the disease? Nobody knew. It was just this mysterious thing that showed up out of nowhere and infected people. It was called St. Anthony's Fire, not to be confused with St. Elmo's Fire. Right. Which is a cheesy 80s pop song for a cheesy 80s... um, Brat Pack movie.
0: Was that the one with Emilio Estevez?
1: Demi Moore was in it. I I know that. The disease started with this faint burning sensation in the skin, and then red spots would soon cover their legs and their arms and uh, other parts of the person's infected body. And as I said, they felt like their limbs were on fire. Their Mm. arms would swell. They would turn bright red before becoming black and developing gangrene and then falling off. This was accompanied by terrible hallucinations.
0: Oh, no. And
1: this convinced them that, of course, it was either the wrath of God or demons were assaulting their bodies before dragging them to hell. Wow. Wow. Then, of course, the gangrene would set in. That smelled great. Once infected, few people survived. St. Anthony's Fire was caused by ergot. Oh. Now we know the story here. It's a fungus that could infect rye grain. At the time, hundreds of hospitals were developed to offer St. Anthony's Fire treatments, but nobody knew what the cause was for St. Anthony's fire. And I know I'm going to say St. Elmo's fire before I'm done with this. You're doing great. <laughs> While I was typing this up, I accidentally typed St. Elmo's fire three times.
0: You could just call it SAF. I could. That's what I do all but, the time when I'm referring to St. Anthony's fire. I call it SAF every time.
1: The hallucinations people suffered, They it was after eating the ergot fungus. And of course, the, uh, the fungus is chemically linked to what? LSD. In 1938, a guy named Albert Hoffman, a chemist in Switzerland, was experimenting with ergot fungus. He accidentally synthesized a psychedelic drug, which we now call LSD.
0: So weird, because I almost did psychedelics today. No,
1: no way. Yeah. Wow, that is weird.
0: One of my co-workers was like, you should do psychedelics. And if you need an interview, I am here to answer (laughs) all of your questions. And I was like, listen, (laughs) Miss High McHigh. Yeah.
1: Have you gone camping recently? <laughs> <laughs> Have you danced with the dog? There's another obscure Carlos
0: Costanata
1: Cast- reference. That's two in two shows. When this guy accidentally synthesized LSD... How did he find out? Did it like he, he like touch it and it like soaked into his skin and he just started having reactions? I mean, who was the first person to do LSD and what was going through their mind besides large ravens wearing sweatpants?
0: And how did how did it become a thing? It was like, listen, I don't want to tell you to try this, <laughs> but do <dude." laughs>
1: Why do they call it St. Anthony's Fire?
0: Because you feel like you're on fire.
1: Sure. But what's it got to do with saint anthony
0: saint anthony is the patron saint of
1: hallucinogenics lsd no but you're close in a strange way yes it was named after saint anthony of egypt anthony was a desert hermit who wandered around the egyptian wilderness and during his travels as the story goes the devil tormented anthony with hallucinations demons constantly attacked St. Anthony in graphic ways. As St. Anthony's biographer wrote, the demons approach in different guise, and they attempt to strike fear, changing their shapes, taking the forms of women, wild beasts, creeping things, gigantic bodies, and troops of soldiers. These torments are only in Anthony's head, though, for they are nothing and quickly disappear. The similarity between St. Anthony's hallucinations and those that brought on um, ergotism linked the two, leading to the name St. Anthony's Fire.
0: Oh, so St. Anthony was suffering from the effects of ergot, most likely.
1: He was a hermit. He lived out in the desert. He ate a lot of uh, wild grains and rye. And, Got it.
0: Yeah. Though, wandering around in the desert, again, very castanada
1: Looking for Don Juan. So why the outbreak during this particular Time period, rye became a very popular grain. This is according to Ranker. It became very popular in the early medieval period when it was first cultivated in Europe for food, but it didn't take long before ergot poisoning followed. The first recorded breakout of gangrenous ergotism, which is the most serious form of the disease, occurred in 857 CE in the Rhine Valley. The victims quickly named the disease Holy Fire. Because of the uh, burning sensation and the fear that God sent the disease as a punishment, it was the wrath of uh, Almighty God. Thousands died from the infected rye, and they had no idea what was causing this. So, it, of course, in those times, if you didn't understand something, it was supernatural. Sure. The victims of St. Anthony's Anthony. fire were almost always peasants, almost always, because of the diet. Right. A small amount of ergot was not very likely to cause any serious harm. Um, in fact, it was also often used as a medical treatment. They, well, they used to give it to uh, mothers who were giving birth. Oh, <laughs> let's get you all looped up.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah. See, I don't think that's a time that anybody would want to be tripping when you're pushing a human being out of your vaginal canal. No,
0: that seems like a terrible, terrible hallucination. <laughs> something's coming out of me
1: <laughs> but the, pe- the peasants ate bread every day mm. the more upper crust if you'll pardon the uh, expression yum, of yum, society yum. Uh, didn't eat bread as much they mostly ate meats um, the fungus could easily prove fatal as one author wrote about 15th century peasants they drink water they eat apples with bread right brown from rye they eat no flesh but if it be seldom a little lard or the entrails or heads of beasts slain by the nobles, so you know pretty much slaughterhouse runoff mm. and LSD.
0: Again, just going to reiterate, this sounds terrible, <laughs> and they're not even high yet. No, just
1: no, they're just <laughs> sick. They're just sick. <laughs>
0: they're just sick and, and poor.
1: Nombing on entrails. So no one knew that rye bread was deadly between the year 990 and 1130. Over fifty thousand people died.
0: Whoa! From Saint
1: Elmo's fire in southern France alone.
0: What was that, like half the population?
1: It was pretty close. In, 9, in 944, the outbreak killed 40,000 people, just that one outbreak. It was a wet climate that year. It helped the fungus grow. Got it. Infected uh, the rye. And that, of course, ground into flour, and then the peasants ate it, and uh, it, w- it included that deadly toxin. In 945, there was another outbreak. It struck in Paris. This time, there was a cure. And I'm doing air quotes, a cure. A cure. Yes. It was called Holy Grains, distributed by Hugh the Great. He was an aristocrat who passed out uninfected grains at St. Mary's Church. And so people who ate those grains did not get sick. And so they thought it was like some, it had some sort of uh, miraculous power to keep them from getting sick.
0: Sure. Well, that's kind of like the, you know, being like, oh... Don't eat that rat poison, eat these Cheerios and they'll cure you of rat poison. It's like, well, no, just don't eat rat poison. Exactly.
1: That's exactly right. St. Anthony's fire was so common that uh, they founded an entire religious order. To, uh, to treat the victims. It was called the Hospitallers of St. Anthony, and it dates to 1095. They, they took care of victims. They treated the disease. They built more than uh, 370 hospitals. And because most of the people who got sick with this were peasants mm-hmm. and were illiterate, they painted all the hospitals red so that peasants would know where to go. Oh, wow. That's an interesting little tidbit. I thought that was fascinating.
0: It is fascinating.
1: The, the hospitals had a very good record for curing the disease, even though they didn't understand the medical cause of St. Anthony's fire. Because they weren't
0: feeding the people the poison bread.
1: It's more likely the lack of rye bread that the hospitals, uh, they did not serve rye bread yeah. in the hospitals. So people would go there and they would get better, or they just wouldn't get sick from, sure. from eating poisonous grains. So what is it exactly that makes the rye toxic? There are small black growths called cockspurs. Mm. I saw those for sale in a magazine once. Farmers thought they were harmless, but there, was some, there were some medical practitioners that used them to, like I mentioned, they thought it sped up childbirth by causing uterine contractions. Sure. It wasn't until 1670 that a, a French doctor named Dr. Foulier realized that it was, in fact, the cockspurs that could kill. He realized that the, uh, the the disease, the gangrenous limbs and the hallucinations that he saw in his practice were not contagious, and that they were often poor, rural people who had the disease. So he started wondering, what do they have in common? What are they eating? His first thought was potatoes. That was a new crop in France oh, at the yes. time. Oh, so he thought it was potatoes. Eventually, though, he realized cockspurs could kill in high quantities.
0: Now, question. Yes. So you can like you you were able to see the the black cockspurs yes, on the bread. You
1: could see it, and yeah.
0: and yet people were still like, nom, 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 nom. yeah.
1: They I guess just thought it was part of the grain. Oh, that's just that's terrible. I know.
0: You gotta scrape that shit off.
1: It's like floor toast. Yes. You know, you pick it up and you, you gotta blow it off. And <sighs> yeah.
0: <sighs> or trash can corn dog that you rinse off in the sink.
1: <laughs> yes, that actually happened. We had some frozen corn dogs cat dropped it. She said, can I make you a corn dog? And I said, that would be great. Thank you. So, so she takes it out of the box and drops it on the floor or actually right in the trash can. can. And she goes, Oh geez, I'm sorry. I, I dropped it in the trash can. And I look over and she's rinsing it off in the sink. (laughs) <laughs> she wasn't going to really give it to me, but I don't think, but...
0: Uh, I mean, I had yet to microwave it, yeah, you, so... Yeah, that,
1: that would have been... Uh, that
0: would have taken care of all those cockspurs immediately.
1: <laughs> so anyway, Dr. Thulier, even though he identified the cause of St. Anthony's fire in 1670... You're doing great. Peasants and farmers refused to believe him. They thought it was fake news. Well into the 20th century, there were outbreaks of ergot poisoning because people wouldn't believe it. There was, in fact, a major outbreak in nineteen fifty one in the French town of Pont saint esprit
0: so was the was the disbelief that it was the Cockspurs because they had already decided that it was like a demon thing or a god thing. Or was it because they just thought it was something else, but certainly not cockspurs?
1: Well, it was interesting that they said peasants and farmers refused to believe it. My thought is probably the farmers started the oh, whole, hey, no. They were lobbyists. Yeah, they were lobbyists. <laughs> and they nope, con-
0: certainly not on my bread. Nope. And,
1: and they convinced the uneducated peasants
0: mm-hmm.
1: that, uh, in fact, this naturally occurring event wasn't real.
0: Right. That's amazing.
1: Mm. So anyway, in 1951, uh, a bunch of people got sick in France again. Victims suffered from um, agitation, sweating, insomnia. Wait, do do
0: I have St. Anthony's (laughs) fire? I'm starting to wonder.
1: (laughs) It it descended into psychosis uh, and four people died.
0: Wow.
1: As recently as that. Now, here's the thing that I think interests me the most. If you look at Northern Renaissance painters their artwork in the 16th century Uh so many of them wrestled with dark themes in their work particularly in depictions of saint anthony there's one 16th century painting called the temptation of saint anthony it shows anthony being carried away into the skies by fantastic beasts the creatures flying on huge fish And surrounded by winged creatures dragging the saint off into the clouds, there is speculation that a lot of Northern Renaissance art from that time period was painted under the influence of hallucinogenics.
0: Uh, Really? Because there's a a Dali painting called The Temptation of St. Anthony, isn't there? It could be. I'm not sure. One moment. Temptation of St. Anthony, a painting by Salvador Dali.
1: This particular temptation of St. Anthony from the 16th century echoed rumors that St. Anthony's fire caused flying hallucinations, making victims believe they could take flight. And there's a building in the background of the painting. It's being consumed with flames, also potentially a reference to the disease. And many art historians believe St. Anthony's fire uh, influenced many of these great Renaissance paintings. Oh, I know. Yeah, you're showing me a picture of uh, Dolly's The Temptation of St. Anthony. I know that. In fact, I think that that was, isn't that at the uh, museum that we we saw in St. Petersburg? In St.
0: Petersburg? I think so. It's the long-legged elephants.
1: So art was influenced by hallucinogenics. Obviously. Back in the 16th century. And of course, also heavily influenced art in the 1960s. But it was the synthesized LSD. Right. And all you have to do is watch the Beatles movie Yellow Submarine to see that. (laughs) That is a total acid trip. So there you go. St. Anthony's Fire.
0: That was really fascinating.
1: The idea that some of that 16th century northern renaissance art was painted on drugs is fascinating to me Mm -hmm. and it it gives you a whole different perspective when looking at it now
0: right to think that
1: these guys were probably tripping balls (laughs) when they were painting and that had a lot to do with uh these very surreal looking images that they they painted i mean come on flying fish
0: (laughs) i really uh like to think that all art uh, like I'm, I'm playing a little exercise in my head right now where I'm picturing different pieces of art and picturing that the artist who created it was real, 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 real high. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking of like the most mundane fruit still life. <laughs> and someone's like, oh, these grapes. My God.
1: That was probably weed, though. Look at these grapes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, look at that basket weave. So there you have it. St. almost fire. Um, <laughs> damn
0: it. You did it.
1: Anyway, let's wrap this up. The dogs need to be fed. Thanks for hanging out with us, you guys. We always love it. We appreciate so much that you take the, uh, the time to download this and to uh, listen to it. And... Also, we appreciate when you uh, you leave nice little messages for us too.
0: We am, we do, yes, thank you. We think you're we think you're all Courtney Cops.
1: Totally hot.
2: <laughs> we'll see you next time, freaks.
0: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
2: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore. It's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. Theboxofoddities.com. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts and its name tells part of the story the big-picture questions, and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, everyone. It's Takuya here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.